Welcome to the latest edition of the Ask Qubit About Analytics podcast, brought to you by Qubit, the trusted experts in analytics. Our goal is to cut through the jargon and hype around analytics and data science and share practical advice to guide you on your analytics journey. You can find us at qubit.com, that's Q-U-E-B-I-T.com. Thank you for joining me today. I'm A.G. Tan. There is so much fascinating news around artificial intelligence, predictive technologies, and data science these days that it makes one's head spin. On the one hand, who isn't interested in the potential of self-driving cars to relieve traffic congestion while also being worried about their safety? Or how about stories of AI being used on genetic data to help find cures for awful diseases? It's everywhere. But sometimes I feel there's a weird disconnect between all these interesting stories and what most people do in their day jobs. In today's episode, we're going to talk to a data scientist about a real-life application of cool technology to a real-life business problem. The business problem is an old one. How much should I charge for my product? And the cool technology? Predictive price optimization. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Qubit's principal data scientist, James Sarenson. James came to Qubit several years ago with a degree in computer engineering, and he has built on that background to deliver many awesome advanced analytics projects for our customers. He also happens to be one of the nicest people around, and if you're ever lucky enough to meet him, can tell you all about electric eels. Hello, James. Welcome. Hey, AG. Thanks. Happy to be here. Since today's topic is predictive price optimization, let's start by talking about how companies price the goods that they sell. One factor is the cost of making, marketing, and selling the item, right? But there's also the concept of market value or what the market is willing to pay. For example, if you're in a fancy bar in New York City, you might be charged $8 or more for a glass of beer. What's the justification for that? The only possible answer is that people who go to a fancy bar in New York City are willing to pay the price, right? Cost and market value are always gonna be huge factors here. Uh, different companies, and in a broader sense, really different industries are always gonna price things differently, but cost is almost always one of the biggest factors because you always need to make sure you're getting a certain margin on products. That's always one of the most critical things to make sure that you're not losing money when you sell something. Um, the type of product that they're selling can also dictate that market value or how much margin they can expect to get. So, you know, that that beer in New York City that costs $8 might cost $4 if you're, you know, maybe somewhere not in a big city. So, and some of that is just inherent market knowledge. Some of that is from experience, but a lot of the time we can see that in the data. But regardless, you're always going to be above that cost and may, be making some margin. Uh, some industries are also influenced by other macroeconomic factors. For example, I recently worked with a company that imports products from China to sell to domestic customers here in the States. And there were some recent tariffs that increased the cost, which then impact the price shown to the customer. So how would a predictive price optimization system play into this picture? What are we trying to maximize? Revenue or profits or units sold or does it depend? 
predictive price optimization is really all about finding the right price for every customer. And this is done really by analyzing customer behavior and figuring out how big a role price plays in selling each product. For example, if you're a retail company and different products are going to have different price sensitivities depending on the customers that go into each store. And this can be based on the demographics or really just who's shopping at any given store. Um, that same product might have different behavior depending on who's buying it. So it follows that we should price it differently. You might, for a single beer, you might see a different price in New York versus California or Alabama, even though it's the same product. And finding these relationships and trends is really where a predictive system can dig into that data and outperform a manual process because there could be hundreds of different products or hundreds of different stores and just knowing what those relationships are and coming up with the right price at the right place. So the tech company Uber got into a lot of trouble one time because they significantly raised their prices when there was a huge demand for taxi cabs at I think it was JFK Airport and they're still struggling I think to recover from the PR nightmare that came from that. When you're talking about predictive price optimization, you're not talking about something that only looks at the dimension of supply and demand, right? Absolutely not. I think that's one of the trickiest, but also most important pieces of this is looking at the market as a whole, seeing what people have paid historically and maybe what's a little bit out of line and might upset people. Um, and part of that is also looking at the competition. So, you know, Uber may or may not have been looking at what Lyft or Juno or some of their competitors have been doing at that time, and they may not have cared, but market perception is always going to be important as well, because as you mentioned, people are still thinking about that Uber price increase. And that's one of the tough things to measure, especially if there's no data to see how that performed in the past. And I think that's really where it's a combination of having the model do what it does based on the data, but also having the expertise of it, the users and the people who know the business and know the market to capture some of those intangible things. So you're basically saying that a truly successful, long-term good for business predictive price optimization system is not so much a system that gives you all the answers, but a partnership between technology and people to come out with something that, that makes sense and obviously also maximizes um, revenue or margin or whatever it is you're measuring. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it because the model can go through the data and find the trends faster and more effectively than any person can because there's just so much there. But it doesn't always have all the answers because there are some things that are going to impact the market or impact sales that just aren't present in the data. And it's not magic, right? You're, it's not going to be able to figure something out if it has no way to do that. And that's really where that partnership comes in because the model might say at JFK, there's going to be a ton of demand and people are going to be paying higher prices no matter how high you put it. But a person can then come in and put their layer their own expertise on there and say, okay, well, nobody's going to spend $300 to go two miles, even if Uber is their only option. So I, I think that's a really good way to put it the way you described it. 
and it really is layering on the science of the data with the expertise of the human. Oh, great explanation. Thank you. So let's try to make it more real for our listeners by talking about something you did at a real customer. So can you start by giving me a description of the customer's business and what drove them to look for a price optimization solution that then led them to us? Sure. So one example is an optimization engine we built for an aftermarket auto parts company. They sell primarily aftermarket car parts that would generally have a lower price than the original equipment manufacturer because uh, if somebody needs to replace a part on one of their old vehicles, rather than paying the list price on some expensive new part, they can go and buy something that you know has the same function but is a little bit cheaper and refurbished or used. They sell all different kinds of auto parts from wheels to air conditioners and just about everything else you can think of. Um, and customers can vary from body shops and other repair shops that are buying parts to repair vehicles for people that came in with a damaged car, um, but also sometimes selling to retail stores that you can go in and buy something off the shelf. The tricky part here is that because these parts are aftermarket and nobody's gonna ever be willing to pay more than the new or original part, you definitely need to make sure that it is cheaper than the new part, but there's also different levels of quality. So some used parts are gonna be in better condition than others. So we need to make sure that the price reflects that as well. And that the, you know, maybe not so great used part is always gonna be cheaper than the almost mint condition new part. So this makes for a lot of complicated rules and bounds that need to be followed. And they were really looking for a way to increase margin across the board, but still keeping those rules and that structure of pricing in place. That sounds incredibly complicated because part of the data that then needs to be collected is some I guess, subjective assessment of quality on every single individual part, right? You can't really just lump things together anymore. Right. Lucky for us, they uh, had some data that at least classified the part into a group uh, and essentially a classification of what level of quality it is. But for other segments of the business, that isn't as tangible and there that definitely is a component of figuring out how good is this part how much mileage was on this engine or you know how many dents are in this door or things like that and that definitely makes it way more complicated right so so how were they doing pricing before was it very painful and time consuming that's putting it lightly. Um, it was primarily a number of people on the pricing team working in Excel, and a lot of their day-to-day -day was typing in equations manually, moving columns around, pivoting data. So it was extremely repetitive and time-consuming. And because they were limited to Excel, they just didn't have the tools that they needed to be more efficient and do the type of analytics that they were looking for to really more intelligently make price changes to accomplish whatever goal that they were, which in this case was generally increasing margin. But because they were spending so much time just in Excel moving data around, they just couldn't do it in the way that they really wanted to. Yeah, good, good old Excel, right? I mean, it's a wonderful tool and it's kind of the go-to for 
almost any problem that involves numeric data, but you know, it gets to a level where it just doesn't scale, right? And this sounds like a good example of that. So, so what did they end up with after you worked with them and, and how did their prices become more optimized? And were there any benefits as well, other benefits, um, for example, in terms of time and effort? We wound up building a solution that was fully automated on the back end. So there is this back end process that just runs and reprocesses the pricing and then also a user interface that they can control different levers and inputs to control how those prices are calculated to some extent and also interact with the final prices. They didn't want to completely replace all the practices that they were founded on, whether or not they were in Excel spreadsheets, because there was some value to what they were doing. So we went through a process of identifying which of those pieces from that original process were important and incorporated a lot of that knowledge and expertise that they already had, but automated it in a you know more um, streamlined process so that it takes just a few seconds and can run overnight rather than them spending hours in Excel. Yeah. On top of that, we layered some predictive models that can then augment the prices to achieve certain objectives. And the user interface was also a huge component here because now they have one centralized place that the pricing team can then collaborate, see pricing changes and make adjustments rather than each person having their own set of Excel spreadsheets that were out of sync and nobody knows what anyone else is doing aside from getting on the phone. Hmm. Uh, interesting. So, so really, this, is, this does sound like a good example of, of the partnership uh, approach that we were talking about earlier, right? You, you didn't ask them to give up their Excel completely, but you actually took a step back and looked at their processes, the business processes, not just the technology, but the business processes to figure out where technology could make things better and then slotted it in. Is, is, is that what I'm hearing here? Yeah, I think that is accurate. Taking, taking what they already had to some extent, trimming out some of the things that didn't really need to be there, and also replacing certain pieces of it with the predictive modeling and figuring out where we can make certain price changes and how to make those price changes, but not completely wiping away some of the valuable pieces that were already there. Yeah, you know, it makes me think about the notion of, of magic or a black box. You know, I think we all sometimes wish that there were just a magical button we could push that would spit out the answer. But then what we forget is our reaction as humans to trusting that answer, right? And, you know, I think that's part of the story as well, that by doing what you did, perhaps you also managed to address that challenge of getting them to trust the answers that were coming out of the system um, because it was less than a black box, but hopefully in a better place than they were in before. Definitely. And because part of it were things that they were already so familiar with, that was easy. But it's always a major challenge in really all predictive modeling projects, not just optimization, to get the users and to understand what the models are doing and why they're giving the answer that they are. And sometimes it's more, more complicated than others, but it's that's always a big part of our job is to turn that black box into something they can understand. For price optimization specifically, 
when we look for price sensitivity or elasticity, we try to use models that are somewhat easy to interpret just with a little bit of guidance. So there's always part of our project is to go through what those models look like, how they're working and look at the output so that the users can have a better understanding of exactly how it's working to sort of take that black box component out just a little bit. Right, right, right. So this all sounds very fancy and complicated. How long does it take to get something like that up and running? I mean, understanding, you know, that, you know, often once people have something that works for them, they want to add on more and make it better and maybe add more data into the mix and so on. But, but you know, just thinking about, you know, the first phase, say, getting them to something that they could use for the first time, approximately how long would that take? Typically. It really depends on what scope they're looking for this first phase, but I'd say anywhere between two and five months. Um, we've done some proof of concept projects that wind up being basically a full implementation, but for a subset of the business and delivered that in just under two months. So if you're starting small, I'd say we can start with just about nothing and going through the current pricing process to having some optimized prices within two months. If we're looking for a more large scale implementation that includes the user interface and some more of the bells and whistles, probably looking at more to four to six months and then with the ability to potentially add on to that going down the line whether it's adding more data sources or more reporting capabilities or things like that right that's great so it's it's months not years and it sounds like even if you're doing a bigger project if you structure it so that it's incremental improvement that way you start reaping the benefits sooner even as you're making things better on a continual basis Absolutely. And I think that also helps with what we were talking about in terms of user acceptance and understanding. That's always going to be a huge component of this because if people don't accept it and people are sort of fighting against the model, it can definitely kind of cripple what we're trying to accomplish. And I think starting small can help achieve that buy-in and also prove out that the model is doing what it should be doing. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, just to wrap up, let's return to the big picture. And how about sharing some tips or lessons learned that might help anyone out there who's interested in investing in predictive price optimization or frankly, any predictive or data science type project, um, tips to help them get started. So can you share some thoughts on this, for example, is there anything a company needs to do to prepare for such a project that's especially or unexpectedly hard? Um, and, and what should people avoid doing in your opinion? The most important thing in really any predictive project is having historical data. Specifically for pricing, we really wanna see that historical sales data pretty much as much as we can possibly get because being able to look back and see over time how price changes have impacted sales, that's really going to be one of the most valuable things we can analyze to figure out what prices work. If we can look at a product and say, well, when prices were high, the demand was low, and when prices were low, the demand was high, that's super important for a model to be able to see that and figure out 
mathematically what that relationship is whether you're predicting prices or if you're trying to predict demand or really anything having those historical relationships is really what's going to make your model do what you want it to do and that's always the most important thing so i know some companies have designated data warehouses where a lot of this data is readily available but there are plenty of cases where it's not and that's really what you can start doing is making a more streamlined process to capture that data and it doesn't need to be just sales data but really anything that drives your business is going to be super important to capture and get in a more automated fashion because that's what's going to make your models do what you want them to do i think what you would want to avoid is throwing data away especially if it is something that drives your business and with regard specifically to pricing um, making price changes without thinking or analyzing the impact. I've seen companies say, I want to increase margin and just throw a blanket price increase across the board to every customer everywhere saying, well, prices are higher, so we're going to be making more margin, which might be true uh, to some extent because higher prices mean your margins are higher. But if you don't think about the impact that's going to have on your customer, then you might be really hurting your sales and hurting your margin overall. I mean, back to that Uber example, I'm sure by increasing their prices as much as they did, the margin estimate on that was probably huge. But if nobody's actually going to buy it, then in reality, you're hurting yourself. Right. And, and sometimes the predictive price optimization engine recommends a lower price because that'll lead to higher volume, right? Exactly. And just because it's the margin per unit is lower doesn't mean that you're not going to have more margin overall, because if you're selling more units, your gross margin dollars is likely going to go up. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Now, let's imagine that I'm, you know, I would love to do this, but I'm pretty sure that I don't have the data yet. Have you ever been in a situation where a customer has approached you for advice on how to prepare to collect data that we're not collecting yet with a view to getting to building a predictive model or an optimization model down the road? Yeah, we can definitely give some advice in terms of what we're really looking for and what that structure looks like. I'd say for the most part, just about everybody has some data historically, even if it's not in a data warehouse. Um, whether it's just some sales orders or purchase order data that lives in flat files somewhere. I think what we can do is give a little bit of guidance in terms of how that data should look and where it can be stored. Because it, it really, it, it, as long as it exists somewhere, it can be manipulated into the format that we need. It's just a matter of getting it that final step um, and having it load in an automated way. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I've been a consultant too, and I know that often our projects do start with a, a kind of assessment um, process where we, you know, talk about what the customer might want to do and where their data lives and what data they have. And, and often we'll help them um, put together a roadmap to get to where they ultimately want to go. Um, and obviously, you know, with incremental benefits along the way as, as we go, but it might not be the predictive model on day one, but we can help them put together a roadmap to get there, starting with, you know, doing an inventory and audit of all their, their data assets. 
Absolutely. And also having conversations with the subject matter experts to figure out which pieces of data are the most important. Oh, absolutely. Great advice, James. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This was great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you. Do you have anything you would like to ask Qubit about analytics? You can tweet us at AskQubit or email us at info at qubit.com. That's info at qubit.com. Until next time. Thank you.